Welcome everybody to the Kim Barrett Show. My name is Kim Barrett, your host. And on today's episode, we have Mr. David Ferreira, who's talking to us all things IP, all things product-based. So if you're someone who has a product-based business, maybe you've been building something out and you're like, I think I need to protect this. This is the episode for you. We dive deep and find out exactly what you need to do, the processes, and find out if you're gonna come up with an idea, when should you protect it, when should you not, and how can you make sure that you actually get your idea is worth and make sure that no one just comes in and sneakily takes it off the table. So if that's something that you've been interested in, you've been wanting to find out about, this is the episode for you. And of course, if we can ever help you with your marketing of maybe your product or idea, head over to marketingmogul.com.au. We've got some case studies and templates that you can take and use straight away to help you improve and grow your business. But until then, let's jump into the show. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you making the time. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you here. Now, I always like to kick off every podcast with a similar question, which is if you and I met at a party and we were chatting and I said, David, what is it that you actually do? What's your go-to answer? Oh, boy. Well, I'm a medical device entrepreneur that develops interventional radiology devices to treat stroke. That's a mouthful, huh? <laughs> it is, it is. I'm sure it gets a lot of attention at parties though, right? <laughs> yeah, with the ladies. They love it. Yeah, they love it. So break that down a little bit for us. Like, so basically it helps with, is it prevention of or treatment of strokes? It's treatment. So I'm an engineer that works with polymers and metals. I make catheters. I make devices that are called stents. I make embolization devices, which is a fancy word for a device that actually blocks blood flow. So if it's a brain aneurysm that could potentially rupture or maybe has ruptured, then we can make a catheter or a certain embolization device that can be placed into the aneurysm to prevent a, a future hemorrhage, which could kill the patient. If it's an ischemic stroke, there's already a blockage in an artery, such as a blood clot or a piece of plaque. We make devices that actually grab that and remove it to restore blood flow to the brain. I love that, that's amazing. Obviously, being the engineering background, like what made you interested in jumping across into that line? My grandfather died of an ischemic stroke when I was in college. And it was actually the week of my sister's wedding. It was 1989. And I met the neurologist who was uh, trying to comfort my grandfather. He, he really couldn't treat him. There was nothing he had for him. And he said, hey, uh, I don't know if you're getting into healthcare or what after you graduate, but you should look at, at healthcare that we could use to treat people like your grandfather. And so that inspired me upon graduation to look into the healthcare market. And from outside of Boston, there were several medical device companies that were making catheters for either heart surgery or some other disease. And that's where I landed first. And it was older scientists at one of the companies that said, hey, the future is stroke and there's no treatment for stroke. So you should keep looking into that area. And Six years later, I co-founded my first company, which was developing an aneurysm occlusion coil that was used to treat hemorrhagic stroke or, or brain aneurysm. So it was that first moment of seeing my grandfather inflicted with a stroke that led me into healthcare, and I've been doing it now, and here it is, 2020, 
and I'm still doing it. So I'm fortunate enough to have that guy kind of kick me in the butt and say, that's what you should do. I love that. That's amazing. Now you mentioned a few things that you started your first company because you've got a bit of like a, almost I call it a triple threat. You've got the healthcare action, but there's a couple other things that you do is fill in the listeners on, on some of the other things that you're up to also. I'm writing a book. It's on how to get a medical device idea to market. Forbes signed me about a year ago and it publishes this December. So that's something I'm really excited about because I can use that to educate either physicians or other engineers as to what it takes to take that crazy problem-solving idea and bring it to market, which is, it's a methodical process. It takes quite a bit of time, but there is a certain way that I've learned and how I've actually done it over the past 25 years. I'm also part of a foundation called the American Heart Association. I've been involved with this group in Orange County now for about three and a half, four years. And it's a way to get involved in your community, to educate everybody, what are the symptoms of stroke and heart disease. So, you know, you can add some preventive care to this because a lot of these ailments, heart attack, ischemic stroke, yeah, some of them are actually preventable if you can diet and exercise, reduce stress. A lot of us don't take care to do, but you'd be amazed. You just walked 30 minutes a day, not even ran. If you ate properly, ate some fruits and vegetables and reduced meat, reduced alcohol, uh, if you were around family and friends, all those stress reducers could just make you so much more healthy and prolong your life. So I'm able to work on all those sides. I can be an educator and teaching people how to do what I do. I can educate the community on how to become healthier and have less stress in their life. And then I can work with the physicians and help them understand the problems they have and hopefully design a device and bring it to market to help them help their patients. That's amazing. I think, as you said, it, there's all those sides. So you really get to help you know, every side of health being the preventative, the care and the physicians in the middle that are treating everything. So I think that's really cool. I do want to skip back though to the book because you mentioned just casually in passing that you got signed by Forbes. How did that come about? What was involved with that in the midst of trying to write, a, I say trying to write a book myself at the moment with one of our clients helps people write books. So I'm uh, going through their process, but yeah, how, how did that come about? It wasn't my idea, I got to tell you. A friend of mine, Oren Claff, who's also an author, he wrote Pitch Anything and Flip the Script. He's an investment banker. I met him during the process of my last company being acquired. We got to know each other. Our, our youngest kids are the same age. And we have some beers, chat about things. And we, we kind of yeah, chat about our life stories. And he's like, man, you should write a book. I'm like, who wants to hear what I have to say? He's like, no, 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 the process of what you do and all the stories that you have to show how you made failures, you made successes, the entrepreneurial lifestyle that you have, you know, but it's a teaching book. And that sounds intriguing. I guess it could be part therapy and actually part education. So he introduced me to his, his ghostwriter because as technical as I am, I'm definitely not a literary whiz. So I met his ghostwriter and her, her process was, Let's talk every Sunday for a few months. I'll give you some homework and I'll write some actual chapter summaries. I'll submit that to a few publishing houses, which she did. And one of them was Forbes. And lo and behold, Forbes has many authors, but they didn't have any authors that were part of the medical device business. So they saw that as a way for them to kind of pivot and get into an area that they weren't involved with. And I was thinking, yeah, Forbes, wow. I mean, that would be great to have on the front of my book. So we signed a contract and that was roughly 18 months ago. So over 18 months, we wrote the book. It's about 55,000 words. It's about 250 pages. 
And we submitted the final manuscript to Forbes about three months ago. My ghostwriter, Bev West, did a fantastic job. The editorial staff at Forbes said, this is ready for publication. So now we're just going through the process of uh, cover design, prologue, epilogue, you know, all those things. So I'm really excited about it and I'm happy with how it came out. Awesome. Is there a long-term goal then behind the book? Obviously you mentioned like, to kind of share more with other people so they can hopefully emulate some of the processes that you've been able to put in there. Is there anything kind of longer term than that on the back of the book? Yeah, I'd like to teach, especially during the pandemic days, right? I mean, there's been lots of layoffs and people aren't going to work. If we can create more entrepreneurs, more creators, people that aren't relying upon the big business. I mean, we obviously need the big business, but I think in the United States, 85% of people work for small businesses. So if we can promote, you know, problem solving, idea creation, and I can show people, you know, hey, if a guy like me can do it from central Massachusetts, you know, start companies, raise money, build teams, then that's the end goal. So, you know, this may become a second or a third book, but after this first book, the goal is to get out there and speak and teach and create a lot of entrepreneurs. And if we can do that, then we'll be a lot better off. And you mentioned in there, starting businesses, raising capital, businesses being acquired. When you go into your businesses, when you started some of them, was that your goal? Were you like, cool, I want to raise capital, grow, and then eventually get them acquired? Or like, what was the thought process in there for you as growing some of those businesses? Yeah, the initial process is to really create a good product, a good service that makes meaning. I mean, if you go into it by saying, hey, I'm going to make a million dollars off this, it's not going to work. It just doesn't. And you don't learn that until years and years later that you, know, you have to make meaning. You have to develop something that people need and something wrong, make something good. So if you go into it yeah, with actually that mindset and create a solution for a problem that needs to be solved. And a lots of engineers that have these great solutions, but they're looking for a problem to solve. And then you end up chasing your tail. So I tend to work really close with physicians that have a day-to-day problem identify that and see, okay, is it in a growing market? If it's a medical devices, can you get paid for it? Is there a reimbursement? Can I get a patent on it? Do I have the right team to do all that? So, I mean, if I can check those four boxes, you know, I'm all in. And I can create a business plan that has a story and begin to attract investors to say, you know, this is a solution that's patent pending. It's in a growing market. We can make money on it. And this is the right team that's going to ease the minds of an investor and then they're going to want to put money into it. And then the goal is to exit and make the investors money and then do it again. I think it's so important what you mentioned there about finding the pain and the problem that people have and being able to solve that because a lot of people I think get so attached to their product or service and they think it's a, a new, great, amazing, shiny thing and they kind of lose, lose track of that and it's like, ooh, every day that's the goal is like find a problem, solve the problem and then you should be able to grow, have a business that grows. It has to start there. If, if everything's great and rosy, then what are you going to do better? You know, if you lower the price, oh, my solution is to make it lower in price. Well, that's one way to do it but if you didn't make it better, then why would somebody use it? I mean, the whole cost model, it doesn't really work that well in healthcare. I mean, there is a sweet spot that you find out clearly if something's a million dollars, no one's going to buy it, okay? There already has to be a path to get paid for it, and it has to make a lot of sense. So, you know, make it work better, make it work safer, you know, faster, stronger, easier to use. And if it's easier to use, you'll have safer procedures, the patient outcomes are better, the physicians will actually grab it first. So, 
you got to solve a problem. And if you can do that, then hey, then you have a successful product or a good service. In that process of you identifying those things, then going out, bringing your investors and growing those companies, was there any time where you had just, you know, because I'm sure there was probably plenty of learning curves along the way, but was there anything when you look back and go, there was like one or two really important things that uh, if I had known what I know now, would have been great to have been able to, you know, time machine, go back and adjust them? Oh yeah, Mindframe, a company that we co-founded in 2007, we developed a device that would be used in ischemic stroke to actually grab a blood clot that's in the middle cerebral artery, remove it, and restore blood flow. That's how it ended up. What we thought was a different mechanism of action. We thought if we deployed this device into the actual clot, flowing blood would just dissolve the clot. And we tried that in five or six patients. It didn't work. Our competitor, which was Covidian, they had a device that was used to treat brain aneurysms, not to treat stroke. They could actually use their device off-label to do what we were doing intentionally to treat ischemic stroke. We were teaching physicians how to use their device because ours wasn't quite ready. Maybe if I would have stayed under the radar a little bit more, but I was trying to get physicians to use something that could treat patients immediately. At the end of the day, what was the benefit we had was our patents issued. So the company that I was training physicians on their device off-label they ended up buying us because we had the patents. So, but the mechanism of action, you know, having the flowing blood, lice the clot, that didn't work. That was a pipe dream. And we probably could have saved a year if we made it and just, you know, grabbed the clot and pulled it out. Little things like, like that. I mean, hey, a year is a year. A year is a lot of money. A year was several millions of dollars of investor dollars. And it was probably several million dollars of lost revenue. But it all worked out because our patents issued. And that's an important you know, piece of any business, at least that I'm in. If you make something that you believe is novel, before you tell anybody about it, before you publish it, before you present it at a conference, before you tell your best friend, file for a patent. Because if you publicly disclose it, then it's a public domain. Anybody can do it. And we were very careful about staying under the radar for the first 90 days to four months filed the patent, and lo and behold, four years later, the patent issued, and we were acquired. And that's the reason why we were acquired, because we had that intellectual property, which was the value creator. I think that's very important. Have you seen much of that flow across to, as you mentioned, like teaching and things like that, where you're a more, not esoteric, but where it's obviously not a tangible device. Have you had much experience or play in, in that space where people have got, you know, maybe it's your system for developing these devices or things like that, which is obviously not a device in itself, had much play in that space with that topic as well? You know, I pretty much stay in my lane. I, I work in catheter-based therapies. It's easier for me to make product improvements or find a, a solution that I can solve. You know, most physicians that I work with are radiologists, so I'm not developing a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm not chasing that. So I'm, I'm going for base hits and doubles. So if it's catheter-based, if it's, if it's coil, if it's a stent, it can be used most parts of the body. An interesting field that I want to get more involved in is, you know, is augmented reality. And that's kind of the hybrid between AI and, say, VR. There's some companies out there now that are developing products that can be used without standard radiation imaging technology. They can be used under either CT or MR, but using actual goggles. So when the physician puts a catheter inside the patient, they already had the imaging of the patient's body 
made into a vision that they can see inside the goggles and they can use the catheters. So that's an area that I believe in 25 years, that's how a lot of patients will actually be treated using that artificial intelligence, virtual reality, which is called augmented reality. That's going to be on the forefront of how physicians either diagnose you and maybe they'll even have you put the goggles on CC. That's what we have to fix inside you. That's the issue. Because right now you're looking at 3D imaging or 2D x-rays. And I've been doing this for 25 years. I can read most of it, but still, I'm not an expert on this. And how physicians read these imaging, it's, it's really incredible. So that augmented reality is going to be a way that we start to use to diagnose and treat patients. And I want to be part of that movement that moves this technology into that field. Love that. And just going back, so you mentioned, obviously, like with patents, how different? So if someone goes out and obviously, I mean, it must be fairly different for that other company that had to acquire you guys, but how different does someone's device need to be for them to be able to go, we can use it without infringing on your patent? Well, there's rules of novelty or what's called non-obviousness. And these are terms created by the patent and trademark office, right? <laughs> like what's novel? What's not obvious? I think right now there's over 10 million patents issued by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And there's a whole nother list of patents that are issued in China and the UK and other countries. But first of all, a patent has to be man-made. Your invention can't be found in nature. It can't, a plant or a bug can't be patented. That's all natural. You could modify the genes of a plant or say, you know, and that can be patented, but it has to be novel and not obvious. And there's certain rules that the patent examiner looks at to prove novelty. They'll look in like uh, journal articles. They'll look at prior patents that have been submitted. They'll look at expired patents, patents that didn't issue, but actually published. So sometimes someone files for a patent and it didn't meet the level of novelty or non-obviousness by the examiner. 18 months from the day you file the patent, whether it issues or not, it publishes. So that's also prior out or public domain. So when you think you have this great novel solution, you need to do your own patentability search and you may find something that didn't actually issue, maybe because the person filing it just abandoned it. They ran out of money, but now anybody can practice it. So you have to look at all of the art it's called, or if you've been at a conference and someone presents it, okay, right now it's in the public domain. So I talk to physicians and say, hey, be very careful. If you think you have something new and novel that helps you in your procedure to treat a patient, write it down and file for a provisional patent before you do any type of publication. But I mean, there's certain rules that all the patent agencies use, but the key ones are it's got to be novel. It can't be obvious. And they can do that by looking at what's called the prior art. Great, great insights. I think that's the most important one you probably mentioned there a few times is, yeah, just don't go sharing stuff before you, uh, before you get it all sussed out because, yeah, I'm sure that would be pretty painful. I think it was, was it the guy, I remember watching a, a movie once about, the, I think it was the guy that invented the windshield wipers. Oh, yeah. And he went around talking about it and then they went and took it from him and patented it. And like every time I think of a product now, I always remember that story. That movie was somewhat incorrect. It was a woman who filed for the windshield wiper patent. Oh, really? And she filed for the patent first. And I mentioned this story in my uh, book. She filed for the patent. She went to present it. And the investors all thought that she was just crazy. And they didn't take her serious. And she got the patent issued. But she couldn't sell it. Because no one believed you actually need windshield wipers to drive in a, a rain or a snowstorm. And then... 
this guy, he picked it up. He still couldn't bring it to market. He, he eventually did. But that was actually invented by a woman first. It was in the 1950s. Oh, wow. I didn't know that part of the story. The story is interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Now, as we get towards the end of our time here today, I always like to ask this question to see if there's anything that we kind of not missed, but maybe not covered. So is there any question that I didn't ask you that I should have? I'm big on teams. I played baseball in college and I look at business as, as a real team sport. I kind of talked about teams initially, you know, yeah, a patent, you know, you have to solve a problem, you need a growing market. It's got to be reimbursed. You know, it has to be reimbursable but it takes people. It takes a team. And I learned the value of teams as a kid growing up playing baseball and ice hockey. I mean, you have nine guys on a baseball diamond and you can't win with six on the field, right? You just shorthanded. Same in ice hockey. You got get, that gets a penalty. Now it's five on four. The other team always scores. Okay. Teams are so important and the roles of each of the team members are so important. The seat they sit in per se, the team that I have, I mean, I'm an engineer, but I'm more or less doing business development now. I work with physicians. I try to hear what their problems are. I have a guy that does all my engineering now. He designs them. He's really creative, clever. We have another guy that does all of our regulatory and quality work. He gets the products approved through CMARC, through the FDA, approved in Australia. I have another guy that does all, all the manufacturing. So we have a very complimentary team. So every time we start a company, it is that group of people that works well together. Yeah, we argue and fight and disagree, but we know how to work together. We know what we're really good at. So, you know, you've got to really have a good team. That's really the most important thing. Investors can de-risk any type of investment that they see if they're comfortable with, you know, this team, a complimentary, successful team. Yeah, I, I think the social network when Mark Zuckerberg was raising money, his uh, roommate, Eduardo Zavron, I think he, he was the first investor, right? Well, he knew him. But, but, you know, Zuckerberg couldn't raise money initially. But he had a great team. And he had the programmers and all that. And he didn't do it by himself. And I think many people realize, yeah, Mark's the CEO. He's a sharp, successful guy. But there's a whole team of people behind him. And that's what makes him be able to do what he does quite well. And that's the same with me. It's all about the team. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that anyone that I've seen that's been successful has always been built off great teamwork. And similar to us here, you know, we have media buying team, graphics team, sales team, internal marketing team, and all of them drive things very, very well. And if they didn't, like I, I definitely could not do it all by myself. So uh, <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree there. Now, for anyone that's been listening to this episode and they said, like, I, I'm interested to find out more, maybe check out your book when it comes out. Where's the best place for them to connect with you online? So we have a website. It's called www.quantumfundoc.com. So Q-U-A-N-T-U-M fundoc.com. And my contact information is there. And I'm also on LinkedIn as usual. Awesome. So guys, wherever you're listening to this, either click through into the show notes or if you're watching this on uh, Facebook or Instagram, make sure you head across and uh, check out the website where you can watch the full episodes and you can also check out all those links. We'll have everything linked up there. Now, if you know anyone that has a physical product, if you know someone that maybe plays in that space, please make sure that you share this episode with them, get them to check it out and listen to uh, some of the interesting stories we've covered, some of the pitfalls to look out for, and then obviously make sure that they're out there growing their team. And if you like this episode, make sure you subscribe, leave us a review and let us know what you thought and we'll uh, pass on any thoughts as well to David after this episode. 
David, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you making the time. Thank you. I enjoyed my time here. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.